Good afternoon, everyone. As you can see, the title for this afternoon's uh, message is entitled, Why is 7 Better Than 666? It's probably quite a, um, probably a topic, sorry, probably a topic that uh, has caused lots of questioning and alarm and concern amongst uh, many people who are familiar with Bible prophecy. Um, I remember there was a, I'm just going to hold it, there was a, uh, time when uh, our church liked to capitalize on our knowledge of uh, Daniel and Revelation. And I had a friend who would go around and um, organize different evangelistic meetings. And it was his turn to preach his very first evangelistic series. And so what he did was he um, put together his brochure. And back then to advertise, they would put every single scary beast that you can think of from Revelation on the paper and say, or on the brochure and say, um, come hear about this and hear about all the mysteries that are revealed in the Bible. And so on the very first page, he said, come hear about the mark of the beast. And opening night, he picked up the flyer because he was kind of thinking, wow, this is, this is my first series of meetings. And to his horror, there was a typo in the word beast. And there was an extra R chucked into that word. And it was come here about the mark of the breast. And so he was thinking, what am I going to preach about? And so, Anyway, that was a bit of an adventure for him. <laughs> and nevertheless, uh, historically, we've kind of looked at the book of Revelation with a bit of a, uh, we tend to use its message to alarm people and kind of tell them, you need to pay attention because the end of time is coming and come into the church basically because this is the way that you're going to find safety. And what I find is the more that I actually read through uh, prophecy and try and understand it myself, um, there are principles that we can take from uh, from prophecy. And I find uh, these messages are quite, um, they've been helpful uh, for me personally, and so I thought I would share a little bit about what I've been learning um, in the past with you. So by way of introduction, if you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. This is the this is often seen by scholars as the central um, part, or this is the main uh, chapter chapters of the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to summarize... Um, the content of Revelation chapter 13. If you want to skim through it while I narrate it briefly, uh, then you're more than welcome to. So Revelation chapter 13 introduces two beasts. Uh, first, there is this sea beast that comes out of the water, and this beast is used by the dragon. And in Bible prophecy, the dragon is generally seen as Satan or the enemy or the adversary. And so this first beast is used by the dragon, and then there's this second land beast that comes out, not from water, but out of the dry ground. And this second beast is used in a very specific way in Revelation chapter 13. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to see how this second beast brings attention to the first beast and the dragon. And they all kind of, the three of them kind of feed off of each other, much like the way that um, in the Bible the Godhead works off of each other. So uh, with God, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here in Revelation 13, you almost have this counterfeit Godhead or counterfeit trinity where you have this land beast, the sea beast, and the dragon, and they tend to work off of each other. So what happens is in verse 16, this is what um, John the Revelator writes. He says, and this is in reference to the second land beast. He says, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one 
who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And there's that famous number. And we've got all kinds of speculation as to what that number means. And we tend to count numbers from people's names and point at people's hats and say, ah, that person's the mark of the beast, or their name is similar to this number. And so as I've listened to different people present on this topic, I've often wondered, what is the significance of this number? Uh, and how how does one read something like this and say, okay, in the year 2014 in October, how does that practically relate to me? And so what I want to do is look at a couple principles in approaching prophecy, and uh, hopefully that will help as we go through this journey together. And so I want to note, as you read through verses 16 to 18, there are a couple things that are prophesied here in this text. The first one is that this beast is trying to gather worship from people and force man-made worship uh, on, uh, the, on the world. Secondarily, uh, notice very specifically, it says, whoever has the, the mark of the beast, uh, they are not able to buy or sell. And then finally, there's that number 666 added to this idea. And so the question is, what is the mark of the beast? What does it represent? Who is the beast? And there are all these questions that come to mind. And so while interpreting uh, prophecy, there have been many different uh, theories. I just kind of typed mark of the beast in Google, and I was just curious what pictures would come up. Uh, Nokia is developing some kind of computer chip that you embed in your, in your body and Basically, it allows you to access different things. And so uh, one might look at that initially and say, technology, oh, that's a little ridiculous. And I spent a little bit of time just thinking, how much information, how much personal information do I have on my Google account alone? And I thought, well, I've got all of my passwords. I've got all of my personal information. I've got, um, yeah, basically everything there is to know about Roy is some way, shape, or form connected to Google. And I thought, yeah, I could potentially get owned by Google, right? Um, and so it's not too far-fetched that uh, a technological company would be able to um, make things difficult for people, basically. And so anyway, that's one theory. Here's the second picture that came up on Google. Oh, one of the second pictures that came to Google. Um, yeah, poor Barack Obama. And as you can see, he's got that pentagram on his, uh, he's got the mark on his forehead, and you've got some horns that are sticking out. And once again, you think of Barack Obama and you think, come on, really? And then to follow up that thought, you can also ask the question, well, who is the most powerful man in the world right now? And one could safely say, well, it's that guy right there. <laughs> and so, um, I don't know. And so that's the second, that's the second theory. And then the third theory is, uh, Tom Cruise. And, um, I just put that up there because poor Tom Cruise. <laughs> the guy just gets a lot of flack, but apparently he's a really nice guy. Anyway, um, so those are those are different theories that are out there, and what I wanted to do was, um, yeah, just give some good solid principles I believe to approaching prophecy that kind of takes away this uh, alarmist type of approach to the Book of Revelation because uh, there are a lot of um, good promises that are given to those that seek and search uh, the Book of Revelation, and I'll share a couple of those with you as well. 
or one with you. So here's the first principle of understanding prophecy. Um, that first text, John chapter 14, verse 29, and I'm wondering if you can read these two verses with me together uh, at the count of three, one, two, three. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Here's the second verse, Isaiah 46, 9, 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. And so both texts reflect a similar principle here. And basically in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself says, listen, I'm going to share something with you that's going to take place in the future. Remember it. And when it's fulfilled, you will know two things. One, I'm telling you the truth. You can trust me and that I am someone who is divine. And that idea is reflected in the Old Testament as well. And so the first principle to understanding Bible prophecy is that prophecy is best understood after it has been fulfilled. And I think a lot of times it's easy to take advantage of Bible prophecy by telling what's going to happen when it hasn't actually happened yet. And we can make Bible prophecy sound like anything. Like you could say the beast is Google or Nokia or Barack Obama or Okay, Tom Cruise is a stretch, but I thought it was funny. But, you know, and, and so I'm just saying you can make anything sound true when it hasn't happened yet. And what Jesus himself says is, listen, just look retrospectively, and then you'll know when Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. And that's how you interpret it accurately. Here's the second principle of Bible prophecy, and I'll just narrate Revelation 1, 1 to 3, um, just because it it's quite lengthy. And the summary is that uh, the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ. Um, it does reveal things which should shortly come to pass. There's a bit of warning that God gives whenever there's a danger, and he wants his people to consider something. God says, be careful, this is going to happen in the future. And then finally, God promises um, a blessing to those who read hear and keep the words of, of prophecy. And we usually use the word prophecy in terms of uh, something that's going to be revealed in the future, or we kind of think of it as even almost, maybe not we, but I think uh, people outside of Christianity might see the word prophecy as something that's a bit uh, kind of like fortune-telling, that, that type of thing. Um, but in the Bible, the word prophecy just means the revealed will of God. And it's, it's a broader meaning behind than just something that's uh, connected to fortune-telling, basically. Okay, so here's, here's the principle from Revelation. Basically, through prophecy, though prophecy warns God's people of danger, prophecy should reveal the character of God. And prophecy is designed to inspire hope, dispel fear, and raise awareness of challenges ahead. And these are two principles that, that um, I've tried to use as I've uh, read through prophecy, and I find it something to be helpful. So uh, with that, what I want to do is introduce the main story for this afternoon. And this story is found in Daniel chapter 3. And so if you have uh, your Bibles or your apps, um, or your Bible apps, if you can turn to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read through this Old Testament story together. And I believe that in this story, God kind of gives this, uh, he uses this story to illustrate the meaning behind the Mark of the Beast issue. And I remember uh, listening to different presentations and being scared out of my mind at the end of it. And I genuinely thought, Jesus is coming next week, and I need to give my life to him. Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen to uh, the United States of America and the rest of the world. And there was ge this genuine sense of um, 
urgency is a nice way of wording it, but I would say like fear and like, ah, and I don't know what word to use to describe that, but basically that's how I felt. So in Daniel chapter three, I believe God gives this story specifically to talk about uh, the end time events. And this story is something that took place thousands of years ago, but I believe there are some valuable lessons to learn from it. So here's how the story is introduced. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and basically what we're going to find is uh, Babylon was this world empire, um, and he uses this particular story, um, and he builds this golden image, and we're going to read about this old, uh, this golden image in just a little bit, and he tries to keep control over his empire by uh, using this golden image and implementing worship um, throughout his kingdom. So here's where we pick up in this story. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, some of you are going to be looking through your Bibles, and it'll give a different number. Some people will say uh, the statue is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. But the original language is really important here in understanding the concept. And so if you look at the original language, it uses the word cubits. So the measurement is 60 by 6. And what ends up happening is later on in the verse, and I'll just allow you to skim, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says there are going to be six instruments that play. It's the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe. I don't know what a trigon is. Um, I think it's just like pipes or something like that. But it's an instrument. <laughs> it's an ancient instrument. And so, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar says 60 cubits by six cubits. There's this image. You're going to hear six instruments and then you bow down and then there's going to be worship that's going to take place. And Nebuchadnezzar basically says, if you don't worship this image, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And so uh, the obedience of his uh, wise men, his governors, his uh, administrators is dependent their safety is dependent upon their worship and so this is very much similar to uh, what's taking place in revelation chapter 13 and so um yeah here you kind of have this 666 number here and jinha kind of said you know it's technically not 666 because that first number is 60 and i was like oh it's fine and so it's 666 okay (laughs) i don't know if any of you are thinking that but (laughs) um and if you look at commentaries, commentators actually uh, write uh, this this statue has very unique proportions because it's a very tall, skinny image. Why would Nebuchadnezzar build an image this way? And for me, I was thinking, I know the answer. <laughs> and if if you understand Revelation chapter 13, the dimensions of this statue make sense. And uh, in the kingdom of Babylon, it's considered a, a, a society that practices a sexagismal and that just means that they use the number six in as many applications as they possibly can and some of those applications come up to us in in society for example um we have angles and if you look at the total degree of angles that you have available to you they're 360 degrees available to a person whenever they're figuring out angles that's divisible by six and the question is well why do we use that measurement as opposed to anything else and the answer is well it comes from babylon and we just kind of use it because it works pretty well um another another measurement or another tool that we use is uh the measurement of time uh, for example there are 60 seconds in a minute 60 minutes in an hour and the question is well why 60 as opposed to 100 because 100 is more i don't know it's just more 
it's an easier number to divide, right? But yet we use 60 because it's something that's Babylonian. And so for those of you who have time pieces like I do, you're just giving homage to Babylon, just letting you know. But anyway, not important. I'm kidding. So basically, um, here we have this practiced, and Nebuchadnezzar is just saying, I am instilling this number 666 because it's closely connected to Babylonian culture, and they use it in their worship, and that's just a part of their culture. And so it kind of permeates um, the Bible as well. And so the worship takes place, and here's what happens. The Bible says that uh, the instruments began to play, and there was this image, and all of Nebuchadnezzar's counselors, treasurers, judges, administrators are in this place called the Plain, Plain of Dura, and everybody bows down, and they begin to worship this image, except for three individuals. And so if you have your Bibles open, you can skim from verses 8 to 18 as I narrate the story. It basically says that at that specific time, there are other administrators who see these three Hebrew boys or three Hebrew men. And you kind of get a picture of what these individuals are like because they come to Nebuchadnezzar and the wording they use is very specific. They say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, May you live forever. And they're kind of kissing up to him. And then they say right after that, Nebuchadnezzar, there are three wise men that you placed into power that have not bowed down to the image. And so they kind of kiss up to him and then they kind of, they kind of give him a put down, but it's veiled because they're like, oh, you're so good. But the people that you implemented into power, they're not following your ways. And so they're kind of, anyway, you get a little picture of what they're like. Then they say, uh, they have not bowed down, and you have said that you're going to punish them. So what are you, what are you gonna do? Now, when I was growing up, um, we used to have this rule, like at the end of church, we would have lots of food, and we would call that food time potluck. And for some reason, during potluck time, they would always invite the highest-ranking church member, and there was like an unwritten set of rules, like high-ranking people in the church versus not-so-high-ranking people in the church. And they would, uh, anyway, they would invite the highest-ranking person in the room to offer prayer for the food. And basically, the rule was, if you are the highest-ranking person, then you have to give a tremendous blessing over the food, and you should pray longer uh, over the food. And the longer the prayer, the more blessed the food is going to be. And that used to kill me, because I wanted to eat the food, right? And so what would happen is the rule is you've got to bow your head and close your eyes. And inevitably, after about 10 minutes, it's like, okay, come on, like somebody, like just start eating. And the prayer is going on and I would open my eyes and there would be some elder or deacon and he would be, he would have his eyes open. He's looking for people who are breaking the unwritten rule. And as soon as we would make eye contact, he's like, you better close your eyes right now. And I'm like, oh, and I would close my eyes. And then right after that, I would think, Wait a second, your, your eyes aren't closed. <laughs> what's going on here? And that's kind of what's going on where the whole kingdom of Babylon, or all the leaders at least, they're supposed to bow down and worship this image. And when you bow down, when that word is used, it's kind of the word prostrate is appropriate. And prostrate just basically means you kneel down, you put your hands on the ground, and your face is to the floor. You can't see anything except for the dirt. And my question is, how do those... Chaldeans know that the three Hebrews are not bowing down. And so if they're like, king, they're not worshiping. The next question is, well, how do you know? And it's like, 
<laughs> and that question is never answered. And so there's a degree of hypocrisy in this story. And what actually happens is Nebuchadnezzar gets infuriated. The Bible says that he's, he has rage and fury and he calls, uh, the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him and he asks them, uh, is it true that you are not bowing down? And, um, What's kind of comical in the story, if, if you're reading through, um, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually let the three Hebrews answer the question. So he says, is it true that you're not bowing down? And then right after that, in the same breath, he says, okay, just in case you forgot the instructions, and then he repeats the instructions. If you hear the six instruments, then bow down. And he doesn't give them a chance to respond. And here is their response. If you look in verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And basically they're just saying, we have no need of being careful to you. We're going to tell you straight, uh, clearly, uh, without uh, hiding behind anything. We're just not going to bow down to this image. And to understand these Hebrews, just to give a little bit of cultural background, the Hebrews were given Ten Commandments from God. And the Ten Commandments were something that was really, really important to the Hebrews. And so the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here before them is this massive uh, golden statue. And most people think that it's gold-plated because... Anyway, not important. Uh, it's not important detail. You see this golden statue in front of them, and there is this foreign god, and they make this decision. We are not going to break the commandment of God, and we will not bow down. And this is kind of the um, this is kind of the crux of the mark of the beast issue. It's whenever anyone makes a stand for anything, there are going to be naysayers. Like for example, um, when I was going through uni. Um, in America, the degrees are very different. Like we have to take very random classes. Uh, so I'm a religion major. And so the core of my classes are built around theology and the Bible and whatever, things that have to do with ministry. And then I had to take a class called nutrition, which is completely random. And so I had to learn about uh, fat-soluble vitamins versus water-soluble vitamins. And uh, vitamin A, D, E, and K are fat-soluble vitamins. And I don't remember what the water-soluble vitamins are. But anyway, why do I know this information? Because the education in America is this way. So anyway, there's exam time. And the professor basically says, listen, uh, it's the final exam. It's comprehensive. And I'm going to I'm going to test you on everything. And nutrition was like, the lab was awesome because we would go and we would make things like tofu, like from soybeans. And so it's cool because you learn about nutrition. And at the same time, what's a pastor doing learning about how to make soybeans into tofu? Like, I'm never going to use this in my work, line of work. But anyway, it was a very difficult exam. And he said, I'm going to give you a four inch by six inch card. And whatever you can fit on that card, you can use for the exam. And so I thought, oh, good. And I, I sit down with my study group and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we just made pages of those four by six cards and stapled it to that one card and then we can have like a book of notes. And we all thought, oh man, that'd be so funny. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then my friend was like, I'm going to do it too. And I was like, all right. And then the night before the exam, I'm thinking, you know, if I get caught with this, <laughs> like this is, that'd be pretty dangerous. What happens if I'm just, you know, bending the rules, but the professor doesn't like it. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do it. And so I just, I wrote in tiny little letters, 
my friend comes to the exam with me and he actually did it. Like he had this book of no, it was like 10 pages worth of notes on this little four by six card. And he was, and he looks at me, he's like, you didn't do it. And I was like, no, I didn't do it. And my point is this has nothing to do with worship or religion or anything, but I just, I make a stand. Oh, I don't want to do it. What happens if I get in trouble? And he gets really mad at me because like, if he gets busted, he's the only one, right? Um, incidentally, he didn't, he didn't get into trouble. Um, the, the professor actually told us, um, at the end of your exam, just dump all the, all of your notes and that way I know what's going through your mind. And he, he dumps his book on the table and walked out. And the professor, the professor did a bit of a double take, like, what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, I did say whatever you can fit on the four by six. So it was okay. But my point is, you take a stand for anything and somebody who is not doing what you are doing is going to take offense to that. And here in the context of Daniel chapter 3, you have this um, circumstance where a person has to decide how they are going to worship God. Am I going to be true to what God has asked me to worship? Or am I going to be true to God's will? Or am I going to bend to circumstance when my life is on the line? And these three Hebrews decide we are not going to bend to the circumstance and we're going to take a stand. And this is kind of what takes place in Revelation. Uh, We're told that in the end time, there are going to be very, very difficult circumstances where the way we worship God is going to be called into question. And we have to make that decision. Am I going to follow God's way or am I going to bend to circumstance? And this story very accurately depicts that. My question is, how is it that these three have so much courage? What motivates them to stand in this time when their lives are, are on the line? When I think about the Ten Commandments, and if you have, if you're, if you've got your Bible open, if you can go to Exodus chapter 20, it lists the Ten Commandments. And Exodus chapter 20 is kind of this famous chapter where it goes through the Ten Commandments one by one and in chronological order. But oddly enough, the chapter doesn't start with the first commandment. It gives this introduction or a precursor to the Ten Commandments. And I want to go through that introduction with you. And I think this is kind of, this kind of reveals, this, uh, it reveals the motivation behind, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's obedience. So here are the first two verses. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And so there is that introduction. And what I want to highlight is picture being Israel at this point in time. Just to give you a little bit of a background history, Israel has been in captivity for over 400 years. They have been slaves of, 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 um, of Egypt. And God comes to them and he delivers them out of Egypt. And afterwards he says, here are the Ten Commandments. Can you, uh, here are my Ten Commandments. Obey me. And my point in bringing this up is that deliverance happened before God required obedience. Deliverance happened before God required obedience. In other words, Israel didn't have to do anything in order for God to promise, I will free you from Egypt. Now what usually happens is there's a transaction that takes place. You do this, I'll do this. Like if I go to the big W and I want to buy Tim Tams, if I want to buy uh, Adriano Zumbo Tim Tams, what I say is I want this item, I will give you money. Now what happens in the Ten Commandments is God says, you take the Tim Tams. 
Will you give me money afterwards? And there's a bit of risk there because God has already fulfilled his part of the end of the bargain. There's this uh, quote here that I want to read. It says, Moreover, since the first commandment is introduced by a statement of God's saving act, obedience to that command is a result, not a precondition to it, which is opposite of what King Nebuchadnezzar asks for. He says, if you don't worship, I'm going to kill you. And there are two very different ways of approaching this situation. So when it comes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have the law of God or the commandments of God in their hearts, and they basically make a stand to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the wording that they use. Going back to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say is, God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already experienced a kind of deliverance that Nebuchadnezzar could not provide. It's the kind of deliverance that goes beyond physical need and safety. It's a spiritual deliverance from selfishness and sin. And it motivated the three Hebrews to look beyond the current physical circumstance and focus on eternal realities. I think this kind of spirituality, this kind of strength is something that's cultivated. And I think the rest of the story begins to give a picture as to how the three Hebrews had experienced the uh, this kind of conviction in their lives previously. And now what happens next is Nebuchadnezzar goes into a fit of rage. He basically says, turn the furnace up seven times hotter. And what's interesting in the story is that Nebuchadnezzar has made it very intentional to use the number six and instead of saying turn the furnace up six times hotter he says turn the furnace up seven times hotter and i believe this is a mistake on nebuchadnezzar's part and um i think god uses it as a lesson in the story and i'll tell you in a little bit why so nebuchadnezzar is just in a fit of rage he says turn the furnace up seven times hotter and then he commands uh, the Bible here says that he commands the mighty men of valor to bind the three Hebrews. And I kind of wonder, here are three Hebrews. Nebuchadnezzar knows who they are because they work in his kingdom. And he gets the strongest men in his army to bind them. And here are three guys. They probably spend most of their time in the library. The heaviest thing they probably lift are books, right? Like there, There's no need to get your strongest soldiers to bind them. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar does anyway. And then he commands the soldiers, throw them into the fiery furnace. And just as the soldiers begin to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, it's so hot there that they die immediately. The story continues on. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into the midst of the, bari, uh, the fiery furnace bound. And then in verse 24, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He rises up in haste and he asks the people next to him, Hey, didn't we throw three people bound into the fiery furnace? Why do I see four men walking around loose? And he can't figure out why this is happening. There's this psalm. It's Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. And I think this psalm kind of unlocks this story and makes it, and adds so much meaning to it. It goes like this. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified how many times? 
seven times. And here you see this imagery that's used in the book of Psalm. You have this furnace of earth. It's turned up seven times. And as somebody, uh, you can almost say, decides, I want to take God's word and keep it in my heart. The experience that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going through is very similar to what one would go through as they keep the word of God. And so here's what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound. And as they get chucked into the fire, as they make a stand for God, they basically communicate, no matter what circumstance that we go through, we're going to obey God's word. And as they enter into that experience, uh, I think it illustrates whenever anyone makes a decision, I want to obey God. And the reason why I say that is, when you take a stand to obey truth, when you take a stand to obey God, there will be difficult circumstances. And it's it's not this uh, experience where somebody enters into uh, this nice hot resort where there's like a beautiful, where there's a beautiful pool and, you know, there's a guava drink uh, that's available to you and you can wear your sunnies and just kind of relax and think, ah, this is what it's like to follow God. It's not always like that. Sometimes the experience is similar to getting chucked into a furnace that's turned up seven times hotter and you really feel heat. It's, it's not something that's always comfortable. It's something that's very refining. And if you think about the story, while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get chucked into the fire, there's something that gets burned off. At the end of the story, if you look at verse 26, it says that the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. And basically the text is saying nothing, no part of their body was hurt and nothing was burned except for one thing. And it isn't clearly reflected in that last verse, but it's reflected in the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get chucked into the fire bound. But while they're in the fire, the Babylonian ropes are the only thing that get burned off basically. And so when we make a stand, God, I want to follow you, there is something that gets burned it's the very things that bind us. Every single one of us have things that bind us. And we would, you know, as Christians, we would call those things uh, sins. Or I don't know if you've ever felt to yourself or thought to yourself, there are some things in my life I just cannot change. There are some things that will n- they'll always be the same because I am just bound by those things. And in Daniel chapter 3, there's a story of the three Hebrews that take that stand. God, I'm going to follow you, and something gets burned. It's the thing that binds them. And that's supposed to be the experience of the Christian that takes a stand. And in the story, what happens is, while the three Hebrews have their have the ropes burned off of them, as they gain freedom to walk around the fiery furnace, this fourth being appears And as Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire furnace, he says, that fourth being looks like the very son of God. And that's supposed to be the experience of the Christian. We step into this hot environment, this difficult circumstance. The things that bind us, we become free. And in the midst of that experience, Jesus himself appears and we experience the presence of God. And that is the Christian experience. And so here is this foreshadowing of end time events that as each and every one of us are faced with difficult circumstances, God, am I going to follow your word? Am I going to take a stand today? And I'd like to pause and ask a question. Is there anything in your life where God is asking you, I want you to take a stand for me?
I want you to take a stand for me. And it could be anything. There's something that you've come across and you've thought, you know, God, there's a certain, there's a particular area in my life. I know that you're asking me to do this, but I'm just, I'm having a hard time with it because I recognize if I follow this, I'm going to feel like I'm in this furnace of earth and I'm going to feel the heat, if you will. And so the challenge is we know the circumstance is not pleasant. And at the same time, it's the very experience that will give us freedom and the very presence of God. And that is kind of the Christian experience. And as we gain little victories today, when the end times come, and these more difficult challenges come, we'll be able to take that same stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, you know what? Despite of the difficult circumstance, I take that stand. There's a contrast between uh, the way that worship is given to God and the way that worship is given to Nebuchadnezzar. If you look at the way that worship is given to Nebuchadnezzar, it's something that's forced. It's fear-motivated and it's fear-driven. If I don't do this, what will King Nebuchadnezzar do? And I'll, I'll be honest, there are times where uh, I am very fear-motivated in the very little things, like um, if I'm buying a necktie and I think, oh, what happens if the necktie doesn't look good? What happens if people don't think it looks nice? I don't want to buy it. And there's those little things that are fear-motivated, like picking out a necktie rather than just going, I really like that necktie, and I buy it, and peace of mind, right? And so... With Nebuchadnezzar or man-made, man-forced worship that's really motivated by the enemy, uh, it is it is fear-motivated. And what ends up happening is that Nebuchadnezzar makes all these terrible mistakes along the way. You see him losing soldiers. You see him getting angry. You see him threatening people's lives. And these are very characteristic of somebody who really doesn't have peace in his life. And in contrast, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who take a stand of faith and even at the risk of losing their lives, you see, uh, well, we don't really know what their facial expressions were like. Maybe they were, maybe they looked completely f- afraid out of their minds. But at least verbally, when we read the text, you see people that are willing to take a stand for God. They're not afraid. They're willing to look beyond the current circumstance. They're able to make logical, good decisions, and they're faithful to God. And I believe that, yeah, just being able to overcome fear and learn how to trust is such a valuable, valuable thing. And I think principally, if we can learn trust, then that will really, really prepare us for anything, really. So I hope that as you think about these things, as you come in contact with God yourself, that you're able to have these experiences where you're able to trust that fourth person that appears in the fiery furnace. I hope that you're able to experience freedom from the things that bind you. And I hope that at the end of it, everyone around you would be able to say, Truly, this is something, this is a miracle. This is something that isn't normal. May God bless you. So the song that we're going to sing, um, and feel free to sing along if you know the song. It's, it's actually one of my favorite songs. It's called Unashamed. And the lyrics will be on the screen so you can um, kind of read through them. But let me just read the part, my favorite part of the song. It's called Unashamed because... Um, it talks about how, you know, we can't stand on our own strength. We really have nothing to recommend us. And I personally am someone who um, is motivated by fear a lot of times. But the reason why um, I'm able to stand at all is not because of my strength, but because of the fact that God has empowered us and the fact that God has 
shown mercy. Um, and so the stand that, you know, we are called to make is, like Roy said, a result of the fact that God has already delivered us, the fact that God has already promised salvation. And it's that promise that gives us the hope and the strength to stand. So that's, um, that's the name of the song, Unashamed.
Father God, as we consider your word, as we learn from the lessons set before us, may we be able to experience deliverance in our lives. May we be able to trust you implicitly, whether you deliver us the way we expect you to or whether you don't. May we be able to give you true, genuine, heart-obedient worship. And uh, Father, may we be able to stand unashamed for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.